Welcome, everybody, um, and I'm happy you guys turned to your neighbors and said hello. To jump into the sermon, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my childhood, so it's a good thing my parents aren't here. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, my parents were great, but as a child, I had a very active mind, and if I'm honest, I'm still a child. We all are still children, despite what our age may say. At the heart of us, we are all kids, all right? You can get an amen for that, for sure. But as a kid, like five years of age, I had this very weird thought of why are we here? From a super young age, right? Like kids are supposed to be playing video games and G.I. Joes and all that type of stuff. And I did that. But in the back of my head, I was always curious, why am I here? What is the point of existence? What is the point of us all being here, playing video games, reading? Why do we go to school? Like, Every kid asks that question, but deep down, I was like, man, why, why do these things happen? Why do we exist? And it's no wonder I had no friends. Um, I'm just kidding. I had one. Anyway, in school, I always knew that science answered the how and what of things, like how things worked. What is this about? What's that about? I realized that mathematics, really all it is, is understanding patterns, figuring out how different patterns work together. But I was curious, why is this all important? Why are we here? There has to be meaning to life. And what really is the truth behind it all? And I think that's probably why subjects like psychology, mathematics, and philosophy intrigue me so much. I wanted to understand the why behind all the questions that all the subjects tried to answer. Because there are so many subjects seeking to answer what, how, why does this thing work, how does the human body work, that I was really just curious about, well, why? Like, why does any of that matter? It's probably one of the reasons that I have a philosophy degree because the definition of philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. Basically, you can't do anything with it once you graduate. <laughs> but what I learned in college was that although you are studying these things, what really is the fundamental thing is your definition of those words, right? Like, it's one thing to say, I'm pursuing truth, but how do you define truth? What is the ultimate truth? What is truth? How do you define a word like that? And many people would say that truth is what you make of it, right? Like, that's your truth, this is my truth, right? But to me, that can't be truth because that means that it's not true all the time. So that can't be the definition of truth is you do your truth, I'll do my truth because it can't be truth. That's just an opinion. And there are some people who would say, well, okay, Nathan, like, there's all these different religions, none of them have it right, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Here's where knowing a little bit of philosophy helps. Because if the statement, there is no absolute truth is correct, that means it's an absolute truth, which means that it can't be correct. <laughs> right? Like, that means that there has to be something that is truth. And in all my studies and all the books that I have ever read, I have found that there's only one truth that really makes sense. 
There's only one truth that I believe can be the true definition of what truth is. And this morning, we are going to look at that truth. We are going to look at Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus, in John 14, says this about himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus here is trying to show that yes, he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is the life, but also in these words, we begin to realize that he is the son of God, which means he is God. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a passage today in John 1. And in this passage, we see four reasons for God being Jesus and Jesus being God. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to John 1. And we're going to read the first 18 verses. It'll also be on the screen. John 1, 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the right or at the Father's side. He has made him known. Lord, as we dissect these verses, I pray we would get out of our own way that we would put the truth that we think is true aside and instead sit with your truth. That we would sit with your son, that we would sit with Jesus and direct all our truths towards him. Lord, I pray whatever baggage we brought in here that we would know that 
We serve a God that is not absent from our lives, but we serve a God that is present in it, that sent his son to experience what it was like to be human, that we might begin to understand who we are and who he is. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. In these 18 verses, we see four reasons to believe that Jesus is God. The first one is that Jesus is eternal. The second, Jesus is the creator. The third, Jesus is our source of life. And the fourth, Jesus was fully human and fully God. So let's take a closer look at these four to understand why they are so important. The first thing to notice in the first two verses is that this is, first off, not a spelling error. I know how to spell the word, word. It is capitalized on purpose. So word here is referring to a person, place, or thing. And we, of course, know that the word is referring to Jesus here. But when the Bible was written in the Greek culture, there was a philosophy articulated by Plato and others that assumed the quote-unquote, the word, was the foundation of everything on earth. Of course, Plato and other philosophers taught that the word meant the perfect thought, that the perfect thought was the foundation of everything. Whereas the Jewish culture looked at the word and they said, no, it's not about a thought, it's about the thinker. And now we understand from this gospel that it's not just about a thinker, but it's about Jesus himself. So the gospel of John here is showing us that the foundation of everything here on earth is Jesus. And we see that too because it first starts out with in the beginning, which is a reference back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is a really cool reference. And the author of this book was doing something smart here when he put this in. Because Genesis 1-1, the word for God there is Elohim, which means three or more, which means already from the very first pages of our Bible, there is reference to the Holy Trinity. But it also means that the Trinity was before anything was ever made. It also means that the entirety of the Trinity, God the Father, uh, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all present at creation. Which means that Jesus is eternal. But that's not just what we get from this. We get Jesus was eternal, but we also get that he was with God. Which means he's equal with God. But he was also, the word was God, which means he is literally God. So he's eternal, he's equal, and he's essentially God. That's what we get from the first two verses right there. But we also see that it doesn't stop there. We see that as we continue to verse 3, that Jesus is also the creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If something is to be created, it must have a creator. I know some of you might not like philosophy. I'm sorry. We're going to get some philosophical conversation going today, so buckle up. Uh, the only thing that is outside of this rule, the only thing outside of this rule of whatever is created has to have a creator, 
is something that was never created. Which means, when it says, without him was not anything made that was made, means that Jesus wasn't the first created being. It means that Jesus was present at creation. He was there for eternity before anything ever happened. And this is important because there are many other religions and cults that claim that Jesus was actually the first created being. But right here, John is disputing it. That is not true. And many false teachers actually even believe that Jesus was just a man. He was not fully God. And there are other sects of religion that believe that, no, Jesus was fully God. He just would have never been a human. Like, humans are weak. Like, ugh, right? So what that sect believes is that we've spoken about eating and drinking in here because that's what Jesus came doing, is that when Jesus was eating, he wasn't actually eating. He was just trying to make everybody feel comfortable. Like, no, trust me, Jesus got tired. Jesus suffered. Jesus had a physical form, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Right here, John wants to dispute everyone that says Jesus is the first created being and instead say, no, he is fully God. He was there at the beginning. He created things. So in the first three verses, we see that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus created with God everything that was made, the heavens and the earth. And it's no wonder that the majority of the verses in the section we are looking at today is about how Jesus is the source of our life. In verses 4 through 13, we see a significant, about, significant section about Jesus being the light of the world. And in these verses, it's important to distinguish that in ancient cultures, light was referred to life. And I know when I say light and life, it sounds similar, but they're kind of interchangeable here. While darkness refers to death. And we also see here that where Jesus is, is life, and light is found there. But we also see in verses 6 through 8, this section about John the Baptist, the mention that John the Baptist was not the light, but he made a way for the light. God used him to present a path for Jesus. But that does not mean John the Baptist was the light. And the author is doing this and putting this in here, in this section, because the author wants to be so clear that John the Baptist is just human. He is not the light of the world. There were people back then that believed that John the Baptist was the bee's knees, that John the Baptist should be worshipped. And here in this gospel, we are understanding that no, we humans are not meant to be worshipped. We're meant to worship the light of the world, which is Jesus. And we are called to point people to him because only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can pull people out of the darkness. But our lives can be a light to the world around us. And we see that the light of Jesus is available to everyone. Even when the truth is right in front of us, sometimes we deny it. Yet the light of Jesus is available to all people. But to see the light you must walk away from the darkness. And he is available to everyone. It makes it clear right here, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The light that gives light to everyone is available. Now, I'm a skeptic by nature. And so when I read something like that, I go, really? The light was available to everyone? Really? 
What about that person that's in a tribe that has never heard a word of Jesus? How does that person know that Jesus is the light? How? Is it possible that, like, maybe this is wrong, right? I can't truly (laughs) answer that question maybe in a way that you guys would appreciate. But what I do know is that the God that is written in these pages and the God that I know never stops chasing after his people. He uses broken people like John the Baptist to present a way to the light. God continuously chased after his people all throughout the Old Testament, although we are dumb. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see we are pretty bad at leading people, but God continually reaches out to his people. And what I know also is that when people in this book reached out to God and said, God, I need you, he showed up. And so if there is somebody in a tribe somewhere that is really deep down going, there has to be a creator, there has to be something out there, the God that I know will stop at nothing to show them who he is. That is the God that I know. And that's why I believe in this section, it's so vital to view Jesus as the light of the world because light and darkness cross cultures. Nobody wants to live in the dark. Light represents warmth, hope, and peace, while darkness represents death, chaos, and fear. And we see this idea throughout movies, throughout cultures, throughout everything. We see it in the Star Wars universe, right? Come on now. Like the light of the Jedi bringing peace to the world and the darkness of the Sith bringing destruction. But there's another idea here that goes beyond the physical elements of light and darkness. See, when somebody gets this bright idea and when they finally see the truth, we say that person is enlightened, right? This section about leaving darkness and pursuing the light is like Jesus coming into a person's life and enlightening them. But it's Jesus who does it. When we are enlightened to the truths of Jesus Christ, we are no longer in darkness and we have chosen to follow the light. It's like a house, although many of us have had our power out. Let's say the house actually has power. When you walk into your house at night, you have a choice to live in the darkness and hit your shins on stuff around the house, or you can turn on the light and live in the light. There is a choice to make whether we live in darkness or in the light. But Jesus offers everyone the same gift. He is the light of the world because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in him, we find the light and revelation of God. It is through Jesus that we see God. And that is why the final part of Jesus being the Trinity is that he was both fully human and fully God. So far up to this point, we've established that Jesus is already God. Right? We've established the fact that he was there at the beginning, that he's the creator, that he's the source of life. Okay, he's God. But now we see that Jesus being fully God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the son of God, both human and God, 
was born in a manger. The Son of God lived a human life, suffered and died, but he did it to show us a way to live. And as I was studying this section of scripture, especially verse 14 this week, uh, I found something out about Jesus's birth that was kind of cool. I always knew Jesus wasn't actually born December 25th. I know I'm ruining Christmas for everyone now. I'm sorry. Still get your kids presents. Don't, don't be a jerk, okay? Um, Lord, forgive me for saying jerk from stage. Anyway, It's really cool. So let me just read you what this commentary said. It says, Jesus was not born on December 25th. Based on the fact that the shepherds were grazing their flock on the night of his birth, he was probably born sometime in the fall. Some scholars suggest he was born at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a week-long celebration where the Jewish culture would come together live in a tent as a community, and celebrate how God moved and had seen their forefathers from slavery to the promised land. To the Jewish culture, the Feast of Tabernacles was a most joyous time of year. I can't imagine a better time for Jesus to be born the God of the Old Testament, always pursuing his people, always trying to bring them out of slavery into the promised land. And now we have the light of the world coming into darkness to bring people from darkness to the light. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing about the fact that Jesus came in grace and truth. We should be just through the moon excited about the fact that Jesus was a perfect blend of grace and truth. People marveled at the truths that he said, how he went at culture, how he went at the religious people at the time and saying, no, you are wrong. This is what actual truth is. People marveled at his words, but they were also so fascinated and amazed by his acts of grace. And I believe That true love is found in both grace and truth. Not one or the other, because we all know somebody that's all about truth. Nobody wants to hang out with them, right? But we also know that person that's like, it's kind of fun to hang out with for a while because they're all grace. But then at some point you're like, "I, I need somebody to call me out on something, right? You know, in my opinion, true love is a balance of both. It is a balance of grace and truth. And Jesus was that perfect mix of grace and truth. And we see in verse 16 that his fullness that we have all received, we receive grace upon grace. When we accept the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, we receive grace upon grace. The grace and truth of Jesus Christ is that he is the son of God who came in the flesh, had a virgin birth, had lived the perfect life, the life that we should all strive after. None of us are going to be perfect, and that's where we get the grace upon grace. But Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He died so that we could live, and then three days later rose from the dead. If we believe that, we receive grace upon grace, a grace that is beyond any understanding. We don't live under the law. 
Instead, we live under the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. A grace and truth that was born in a manger. A grace and truth that came to embody love to his people. The grace and truth that saves. The grace and truth that is the way of life. Because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Because Jesus was both fully human and is fully God. And we relate to Jesus because of his humanness, but we get to see God through him as well. And if you are curious who the God of the universe is, look at Jesus. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in my opinion, to be completely honest, read anywhere in the Bible because I think everything points to him. He was there from the first pages and he's still here now. I believe everything points to him. But if you want to know who Jesus is, Jesus will show you he is the creator of all things that came in grace and truth. Jesus will show you that there is a God that will never stop chasing after you. Jesus shows us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That is who Jesus is. But that is also who God is. Because Jesus is God. And if you are struggling to know who God is or the characteristics of God, look at the man of Jesus Christ. Get to know him and you will know God. Because Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the source of life. And Jesus was fully human, but he is fully God. And it's because of these four reasons that we can know that Jesus is a part of the Trinity. It's because of these four reasons that we can know that Jesus is ultimately God, because only God can be eternal, because the very voice of God created, because only God can be the source of life. That's it. This is how we know that Jesus is a part of the Trinity, but Jesus is also fully human and fully God. Jesus is the light of the world, and this light came into the world so we can understand how to live. But not just that. He came into the world to take on our sin. My sin held him there on the cross. All of our sin held him there on the cross. The perfect being, a piece of God himself, came to earth to take on our sin so that we could live. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, showing that no biology, no physics, no nothing has control over the God of the universe. But also showing that the principalities of darkness cannot stop the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus is worthy of our praise and worship because he is the son of God because he is God, because he is the light of the world. But also he is our redeemer and he is our prince of peace. And if Jesus is these things, if Jesus really is eternal, if Jesus really is the creator, if he is really our source of life, why don't we worship him that way?
Because I know, because I'm just like this. Because <laughs> I know later today, watching a football game, I might be clapping my hands and cheering and real excited. I know if I was at the football game, I might be standing the entire time screaming. I know when I go to a concert, I'm like, yeah, let's go. Like, I'm not much of a dancer, but if other people are dancing and Heidi's there, I'll be like, uh, uh. Or if we're at home and Sam's dancing, I definitely will dance. But like, that's how we get at concerts. That's how we get at sporting events. We get excited. We're willing to clap. We're willing to raise our hands and scream for joy. But when it comes to worshiping Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, we sit with our hands crossed and we do, Holy Spirit, you welcome here. The flood Like, And I'm guilty of this too, so there's no condemnation here. And there's grace upon grace as well. But our culture finds it easy to worship sports, movies, and rock stars. But we find it difficult to worship the God of the universe, the Savior of the world, the light in darkness. Will we choose to worship in a way that shows that Jesus is the Son of God? Will we choose to worship in a way that shows he is the creator of the universe? Will we choose to worship Jesus in a way that shows he died for us so we can experience the light of the world, so we can experience grace upon grace? Will we choose to worship the God of the universe who sent a piece of himself to this world so that we can know what it means to live in the light, so that we can receive grace upon grace? I think it's at this point that I need to stop talking so we can have the worship team come back up here because we need to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So God, as we head into a time of worship, I pray that we would not be concerned what's going on to our left and our right. We would not be concerned about the thoughts of others, but instead we would recognize that Jesus is eternal. He is the creator of the universe. He is the source of our life. And God, he came to be the perfect human so we can have something to strive for, but at the same time, he came in grace and truth so we can receive grace upon grace. Lord, I pray that not just over the next couple of songs that we're going to sing, but throughout our weeks and throughout our lives, we would take time to worship you as the creator, that we would take time to worship you as the son, that we would take time to worship you as the Holy Spirit because you are worthy of our praise. Lord, thank you for being the light in darkness. May we walk away from the darkness of our lives and pursue the light that is a perfect balance of grace and truth. Amen.